Hey there, this is food writer Jamie Lewis, welcoming you to another episode of The Consumed Podcast, where I hold candid and casual conversations with people across California's central coast, the ones who put food on our plates and drinks in our glass. I'm so glad you're here. Before we get to this episode's guest, I want to share a word from Consumed Sponsors. We all know eating fruits and veggies is an important part of staying healthy. Fresh, local produce has the most flavor and nutrition, but how do you know what's in season locally? Become part of the Tally community as a member of the Tally Farms Box Program. Tally grows their produce and partners with other California farmers to include the freshest and best-tasting local produce you can find anywhere. Farming on the Central Coast since 1948, the Tally family created the Tally Farms Box to make healthy eating easy and affordable. Here's how it works. Select which size box you want, then choose pickup or home delivery and how often you want to get your box. It's flexible for customization and vacation holds, and included in all boxes are tested recipes and storage recommendations. Come be a part of Tally's healthy lifestyle. Visit tallyfarmsbox.com and use promo code CONSUMED for $10 off your first box. That's promo code CONSUMED for $10 off. Eat fresh, eat local, and eat lots of California fruits and veggies for better health. Slow Life Magazine also sponsors the Consumed Podcast. Slow Life looks at what's going on in San Luis Obispo including the arts, real estate, business, and the people impacting culture here. For the magazine, I just wrapped up writing my food column about the restaurant Pekin Coastal Cocina in Pismo Beach, where I ate swordfish tacos dusted with house-made savory pop rocks. What? So fun, so new, and so fizzy. To read all about it and much more, get your copy at slowlifemagazine.com. So I recently read The Full Belly Files, which is written by a consumed alum, wine writer Matt Ketman in Santa Barbara. And who should he be writing about but none other than Santa Maria Valley vintner James Onaveros of Ranchos de Onaveros Vineyards, another consumed alum and sponsor of this podcast. About James, Matt wrote, Ontiveros is a wealth of fascinating information, whether of the region's lore, his cowboy days, or his outlook on the future challenges of the wine industry. I'm hoping he'll agree to be a cover story one day. Hmm, I'm hoping the same. Thank you to James Onaveros for keeping the history and heritage of the Central Coast alive and well through his wines at Ranchos de Onaveros. And thank you to Matt Ketman for recognizing a good cover story when he sees it. To learn more about Ranchos de Onaveros' burgundy-centered Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, visit ranchostayonaveros.com. Okay, on to the episode. When farmer and winemaker Eric Jensen talks, people listen. As you'll hear, he has that great raspy voice that commands attention. At least it certainly commanded mine. The man behind Booker Wines, My Favorite Neighbor, and Harvey and Harriet Wines, Eric grew up in Southern California in a large Catholic family where what they didn't make in cash, they made in lifelong memories. A self-professed knucklehead as a kid, Eric went on to be a real estate developer and concert promoter before heading for the hills of Paso Robles. 
Eric spent his formative years as a winemaker in the company of Paso Robles pillars like Stefan Aceo of Laventure Winery and Justin Smith of Saxum. Yes, these are big, big names, routinely called cult producers, and Eric is right in there with them. He and Booker Wines have wound up on just about every best of list out there, from Wine Spectator to Forbes to Food and Wine and so many others. We talked about Eric's work with Must Charities, a powerful nonprofit that benefits the communities where wine is made. We talked about the space at Booker's Tasting Room in Paso Robles, and we talked about that one time he bought a car before the check cleared. Here's Eric Jensen. Here's what I know about you. I know um, I've tasted Booker, of course. It's fantastic. Roan-centered. But you don't only do that. You have other labels that include other varieties. Um, And it sounds like you have a lot of broad interest in terms of the wine that you make. And, um, but a lot of what you do is very people centered. So the wine is for sure there and, you know, outstanding, but your brands have a lot to do with the people in your life. Is that accurate? Would you say? Very much. Yeah. And, and the brands have their own ego system about them it's you know we farm organically we're certified yeah. we farm biodynamically or we follow i have to say biodynamic practices right you're not like demeter or- no i that's i'm not gonna say negative things about them but i'm not getting i'm not attempting i hear you you're not the first to say that of course um we are about to get our regenerative certification which is very difficult we should have that in a couple months and that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, regenerative organic uh, certification, very difficult. But for us, it starts with site, how we treat the site. We won't p- put something in a bottle to put in our customer's body that we wouldn't put in our body. Mm-hmm. And this is the way we live. We live kind of off the land, right? Gardens mm-hmm. and uh, uh, farm to table, everything, no chemicals. So my wife and I, our kids have adopted it as much as they pouted about it. Now you look at them and they're very health conscious, yeah. um, unless they're drunk late night and then, you know. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm sure the I'm sure the booze is organic. Yeah, and- <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but then employees and we're. It, it's kind of funny. We're probably I hate to say this, but we're not a customer first company. We're an employee first company because mm-hmm. I, I've always believed if, if. Our team is happy and taken care of and they want to come into work. I don't need to worry about the customer. They're going to get taken care of. And so we've always been an employee team member first company. And we just have a great culture, very diverse, mostly in, in the trailer, the, the, the heads of the company are all females. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that has, was always the way it was. Mm-hmm. Um, we now have a female assistant winemaker, Cece Aguirre, who's a Cal Poly girl. Cool. Um, and so just a really cool, we, we, we're very Cal Poly driven. I mean, well, who isn't? I mean, know, yeah, they're just the best cause they're such workers. You know, Davis is more for research. Cal Poly is who you hire if you want to get work done. Learn by so, doing. Learn yep. by doing. So yeah, I, I, we look at it not as just a winery and a vineyard, but just a whole culture and lifestyle and um, that kind of guides who we are and what we do. Yeah. So as far as, uh, well, the reason I, I uh, 
I bring that up about people is um, this podcast. We can get geeky. We can talk about, you know, filtration system or, or lack thereof or whatever, you know, cow horn in the dirt, all that stuff. We can totally discuss that. But what I'm more interested in is, you know, what got you here? What makes somebody take this kind of a risk, which is an insane risk if you really think about it. Um, you left a career. Sounds like maybe even two careers. To come and start a winery in Paso, where you'd never lived before, as far no. as I understand. Okay. Uh, probably just as crazy of my wife that she followed and didn't divorce me. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we had babies, very little babies, a two and a one-year-old. Uh, and then we had Genevieve, uh, who's a senior, just graduated. She's off to Notre Dame next year. She is oh. our youngest, and, and she was born on the on the vineyard mm. day of the earth, or came home the day of the earthquake. It was crazy. But I I just think with most entrepreneurs, they just have a, a screw loose. Yes. And they don't have a fear factor like most people. My wife has a severe fear factor. Mm -hmm. I mean, she still freaks out. Like, are we going to be able to retire? It's like, yeah, right. we'll, we're good. Mm -hmm. um, she's just not wired like I am. I... Every time I took a risk, I just laughed at it like, what's the real risk? I mean, mm -hmm. am I unhirable? <laughs> I shouldn't say it like that because I, <laughs> I might be now. Yeah. But <laughs> could I not go, you know, could work at Starbucks. Do, do another job? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> I, 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 could ha I would have gainful employment. Yeah. I would not have a problem getting hired by somebody and showing up to work um, first person in, last person out mm -hmm. and work my way up. Uh, wherever I was, I, I just believe that. And when you have that confidence um, or a screw loose, maybe, yeah. and that's why, you know, you fail a lot. Entrepreneurs fail nonstop. I failed a lot in my life. I've fallen flat on my face. I still have moments where I fall flat on my face. Sure. Just, tell me, on. tell me a story about a time that you failed. I mean, we all talk about failing forward, but it's good to hear like the real vulnerable story of, you know, there was this time that I really blew it. Um, and a lot of people will say they don't regret anything in life, but, but there are failure stories that are instructive for anybody who might be listening. Yeah, I think I do regret it. I, I just regret what an idiot I was. <laughs> so yeah. I was doing a development in Desert Hot Springs, and we had just gotten approved to do a casino. You were a developer? A well, I, I wasn't a good one, <clears throat> and but I thought I was. So, okay. And I hooked up with the right people, and I was developing an area around an old hotel, and I was going to build houses, and the, uh, Builders were in there like, okay, I'll, I'll take a section. You know, there was going to be three or four different builders in there. And we were going to get a casino approved. So I, this was a really life-changing deal. Like yeah. I just hatched all this stuff up and then worked to make it happen. But then I didn't have the money. And so I went to a firm that basically put par a partnership together in a group. And they, were, they would become the general and buy me out. And I would just then at that point, I could have stayed on as a general or become limited. And I negotiated at the very last minute. I decided I needed a convertible 500 Mercedes Benz. 
What a I don't. I, I, there's things I would say, but I I don't want you to have to put an X rating about. No, we an, swear, we swear. What an absolute asshole I was! <laughs> what a, just a d bag, and <laughs> just kind of maybe thinking about the I, the surface thing that you want. I just had to win, yeah. And it was so stupid, and it taught me such a valuable lesson that I've lived by since, you know, in negotiating. And about two days later, they were so taken aback by that they're like. Oh, they saw the car. No. Oh. They're like, dude, you're going to have a nicer car than anybody in our company, including the owner. Like, F you. Yeah. And then they decided, we don't want to work with this dude. And they up and said, nah. Did they break contract with you? Change of plans. Yep. See you later. Come after us. Do what you want. And I was so thin on money that, like, it was the stupidest thing to do. What I should have done is, you know, gone to Iceland and shut my mouth and Mm. thrown a had no access to anything so I couldn't screw the deal up so mm. it's a hard lesson yeah lost everything and had to start all over again and you know I, I went through you know I was just down in Orange County and I was I, I went shopping at a place in the apartment complex I was in after college where we would have to sneak in the fire escape and we would write at the Vaughn's grocery store across the street we would have to write a bad check to get groceries because we couldn't eat. And so we'd write it and then we'd just hope we had a, got paid that week. Yep. And that was in the days when they would just, they'd kind of give you a week and they'd post it right next to the cash register, you know. <laughs> this guy. For everybody to this see. This guy. Yeah. So yeah, it, uh, that was a, that was a rough one, but shoot. I mean, I could probably line them up, you know, the failures, but you just, what are you going to do? You you either crawl up into a ball like most kind of average or people that really put probably shouldn't have been an entrepreneur do. They crawl up, curl up into a ball in the corner and they just go to work for someone and they just say, I just, I'm not cut out for it. They can never get back over that first massive failure. Mm-hmm. And I just don't think everyone's cut out for it. Yeah, I just think you're wired a certain way. Like I wasn't wired, I probably have severe ADD. I wasn't wired to do things that my son Jake um, or my daughter Vivi does. I'm more like my son Max Mm -hmm. and definitely not like my wife. Mm -hmm. And, but I'm wired this way Yeah. where I can take those things and just shrug them off and say, all right. Yeah. Well, when you say, what are you going to do? I mean, I think the only thing you can do is remember, right? Remember the story about the Mercedes and let it instruct you when, when you come into some money the next time, you know, I think that that alone is, it can be an expensive thing to remember, uh, an expensive lesson to learn. But if you have the chance to keep taking risks and you have that screw loose, you know, in the best possible way, the people who have the screw loose and change their community you know, in the pursuit of a new business or a new endeavor. Those are the people that I really love. If you're doing it with a, with a beneficial something in that business plan and you fail, like that's a noble, that's a noble thing. And I know you're really involved with must charities and maybe you can describe that, but that's, that is part of your, that's part of your lifestyle is, well, is I- giving back. Yeah, we, I, I grew up, you know, I, I grew up in a room with four girls, you know, in a tiny house about the size of your right here, you mm-hmm, know, mm-hmm. 
and my mom was very philanthropic, even though we had no money, man. She was, if there was a car wash, we were working it. Mm-hmm. We couldn't donate, so we were always, when there, when you had to sell Easter eggs for a good cause for the church, we were selling them. We were, she'd stand out by the bank with us all damn night. She'd have us at three different banks, and she'd just be circling, and you had to sit there and beg for money. That was probably a great, great start. Um, but, so I've always felt that way, that, that, you know, kind of, I've always had that Salvation Army, a, a, a hand up, not a hand out. Mm-hmm. And that mentality, like, okay, let's let's leave no one behind. In the wine business, we were doing so much for others in Carolina and, you know, Colorado, donating to children's hospitals, all kinds of events. Because mm-hmm. wine is very big at charitable auctions around the United States. Yeah. We weren't doing enough here. And I wanted to protect our little utopian, pastoral society that we have. And I started realizing, hey, man, we have to do a lot more. So I got a couple buddies and I said, hey, let's let's go have a beer. I want to pitch you guys on something. And I pitched them on must. I pitched them on, hey, let's start a deal. And so about five of us got involved. We went to the bank and we told them we knew what we were doing and we needed money. And they laughed in our face and says, we won't give you money, but we'll hire you a firm to teach you how to run a charity. Mm -hmm. And we spent a year of intense meetings and training, realizing that basically 90% of charities should probably go away and leave it to the 10% that are Mm -hmm. pros that can can move the needle. Mm -hmm. What happens is someone's sister dies of leukemia and so they want to, help and start a leukemia deal but then there's an office space business cards and a billion other leukemia organizations you, that you may be competing with and then who are you competing with and are you transferring dollars in your community just from the girl scouts over to you yeah or you know so there's all these things to think about so we started must with the intention of bringing outside dollars and continue to attack the most pressing items that we had in, 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 in San Luis County um, and started with the North County mm-hmm. and and worked with Capslow. Okay, point us out what are the biggest needs and and then what we'll do, let's say you've got two organizations dealing with abused women. Mm-hmm. We're going to find which one's the best mm-hmm. and then we're going to cut a deal with them and we're going to put metrics attached like, okay, yeah. you need a new board mm-hmm. or your board has to strengthen up bringing two more members uh, you need a new CEO. You've got great philanthropy people, but you don't have a business, business. leader. Yeah, right. So we'll write those checks that people don't think about that stuff. That's how you take a, a, a foundation, a charitable organization, and go from a $200,000 operating budget to, to $12 million. Mm-hmm. It has to be run that way. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you you know, with our in our case with Moss, the board pays the salary of the workers. And so a hundred percent of donations go directly to echo to you know, all the mm-hmm. causes. We built that boys and girls club, uh, uh, well, a large portion of it must last year raised them like 700,000 just with the live auction. This year's live auction on August 12th at the, uh, must auction. Our goal is to raise 2 million last year. Our first year we raised about a million, between a million three and a million five, the number got went up because people kept giving. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the farm workers, yeah. children, 
that's the fun to need this year uh, cool. for education scholarship, college scholarship. It doesn't have to be in winemaking. It could be in engineering. It could be anything. Yeah. And then we'll give them internships, mentorships, everything. We'll create an entire program so that those kids don't come over because we really need, obviously, their parents. Yeah. Whether you th- whether let's not get political. No. Without them, we're. But you do simply need them. Have to have them. Yeah. Don't op- wine business, farming business is out of business without them. Yeah. But what happens to their kids? Do they want to work those hours? They're probably looking at them. So it, probably my guess always has been it's probably easier to go job to job, to sell drugs, to do something for a quick buck because you're not going to do that in the heat. Mm-hmm. And so we're trying to find pathways forward for them. Mm-hmm. And and this program will help a lot. So Must has just been awesome. Uh, the, the team there is incredible. Yeah. And it's really moving the needle. And that's the big deal. How do we move the needle? Affect real change. You can visually see mm-hmm. instead of wondering, God, are we really doing anything? Yeah. Well, you also, the fact that you've had Becky Gray for so long, who's the executive director, speaks to the quality, her quality of life. I've worked in nonprofits and... Um, staff is everything. Board is, of course, critical. Staff, people on the ground enacting that change to have somebody talented with institutional knowledge that doesn't disappear when they move on, that is so good. Um, how how much did you start with in the coffers when you opened Must? And then, And I'm looking for how it's grown. Well, the bank put up a lot of money to get us trained up. They spent hundreds of thousands, Robbo did. Mm-hmm. Um, and then all the board members, I think, put up 20000 to get going. And then we all hit the road, Yeah, meaning the local road, mm-hmm. bringing in new members, doing, finding ways to get money. Remember, I don't want to go to you and say, well, you donate $1,000. Because if that $1,000 was already going, like I said, to the homeless shelter here or to the Girl Scouts, Mm -hmm. I'm just taking money from them. That's just a redistribution of cash. It's not good. Mm -hmm. You have to find ways that are sustainable. Like membership almost, right? Yeah, and and outside money does wonders. Mm -hmm. So when you can bring people from the outside, so the dollar a bottle deal was outstanding. Those are all visitors so everyone took their $50 bottle, $40 bottle, and just charged 41 yeah. and gave a buck a bottle. Yeah. Now all of a sudden, the consumer doesn't care. They know what you're doing, so they're happy about it. They're people from outside the area. Mm-hmm. So you're not pounding constantly the same people that might have given. Yeah. Now you start finding these transplants that retired here wealthy, and they haven't been found their love yet. And they're like, wow. Mm-hmm. You guys are organized. This is a serious operation. We want in. How can we be board members or helpers? Mm-hmm. And oh, by the way, here's $50,000. And I think of that as outside money, actually, when people move into the area. It's also self-sustaining in a lot of ways because I think if you didn't have such a fine product as Paso Robles wine, and I assume uh, also Edna Valley, AG Valley, just Slow County wine, um, if you didn't have such an excellent product... People wouldn't give. And so now you're attracting people through your product to give to the place that is 
making the wine. I mean, it's just this beautiful kind of circuitous thing. And sustainable, right? Because right. the, whole, the whole gig here is if I call you every year, finally when the phone rings or like, you know, my high school, almost every time they call me and I love them and I, I'm, I'm a big fan because they did so much to change my life. But when the phone rings, I think, okay, what do they need? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you don't want that. Yeah. You, you really got to be very careful of that. So we don't want that. Mm-hmm. We want when the phone rings, it's to say, hey, we've got a, a barbecue or we got extra tickets at a Vigna Robles box or, you know. Um, sustainability is very difficult. Staying in touch, cultivating those relationships. Um, but again, not stealing from somebody that might be given to another project, yeah. finding new money from them where you say, hey, you're not going to be able to spend what you have, especially with older people. Like, mm-hmm. why don't we endow something? Why don't we yeah. get on a program where you're not affecting the normal organizations you love locally? How can we do something with you over here that doesn't take from them? And and we, we want to do that dance um, delicately. Cause we're, we're, we're agnostic. We're not about the boys and girls club. We're not about the homeless shelter. We're not about the food bank, but we support all of them. Yeah. You know, so we don't want to hurt anybody. So most people don't think about the, when they think charity, it's just, Hey, open your checkbook up. We have to be extremely thoughtful and that's how you create that sustainability long-term. We're looking at the next hundred years with this company. We're not looking in years or months. We're looking in decades now. Yeah, yeah. It's like raising children, right? Yep. You're thinking about a legacy. Well, so you mentioned your high school. Where'd you go to high school? Uh, outside of Los Angeles. All boys Catholic high school. It's just great. Yeah, what's it called? Damien. Okay. It was in Laburn. And yeah. uh, just the priests were just so, I had so many great inspirational priests. I was a knucklehead. And these guys, they would a lot, just talk to me. Just They were just so cool. Uh you know, and and I had probably two or three that were just great dudes. Like they they were great. They they'd show up at a party and have a beer with us. They they were oh. like, you know, yeah. A lot of priests like to drink. Unfortunately, they, you, know, <laughs> you, you, you get a lot of vices. I've, I've had some drinks with priests before up at the Hermitage in, in Big Sur. And, a lot uh, of vices. Uh, you get you gotta well, have they're, booze. They're people. Yeah. I mean, they're totally people. And if anything, they're more I think willing to embrace their humanity. Hopefully. Yeah. Um, so you say you were knucklehead. In what ways were you knucklehead? Oh, I was just loud and obnoxious and, you know, partying too much. And, you know, I was just, I was that guy, you know, and I uh, went to college <laughs> and stayed that guy. And then finally I, uh, a light bulb turned on and about my senior, my, I don't know which senior year, my second or third. <laughs> I, I still never graduated. I probably should go back to Cal Poly. Did you Poly. not graduate? No. You studied at Cal Poly? No, Cal State Fullerton. I'm a dropout. Oh, okay. I've taken 10 classes at Cal Poly online and, yeah. and done all the wine event stuff they offer. I should probably go back, but. What'd you study? What was your business? Major? Okay. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm degreeless. And, uh, people who don't graduate, this is, I, I don't know you well enough to parse this out, but. People who don't graduate, either high school or college, I find they really hang on to that. Like, it, they can't let it go. 
And the funny thing is for those of us who did graduate, I think I'm just like, why is that a problem? I mean, you probably took as many classes as you needed to, to get the information, but it's that, it's that final, the closure of the ceremony and everything. I think it means a lot to people. We don't, we take it for granted perhaps. And I'm from a family that had nobody ever graduate in the history of the bloodline. My niece, uh, a year or two before my son, Jake, graduated and Jake and his brother Max uh, Jake went to mission prep here Max mission prep and then Templeton both went to CU Boulder they were number two and three in the history of the bloodline yeah you know it's on on my side yeah so yeah I was kind of the the big hope and uh, I didn't but it it you know to me don't take this wrong but the pursuit of college is a joke yeah. Right. We don't have enough tractor drivers. We don't have enough welders. Mm-hmm. I, my son Max has a couple buddies that started a tree service or a buddy. Mm-hmm. A kid's making a buck, oh buck gosh. 25 a year. Max is just getting out yes. of college. This kid's light years ahead of him, has his own company, yeah. now knows how to run it. Uh, you know, be a plumber, make bank. We don't have enough. Don't have enough. Yeah. We don't have tradespeople. You can't get them. I just came up from our beach house. I can't get a handyman. Mm-hmm. So I got to become a handyman. Yeah. So I'm sitting there on YouTube. I'm, I have to learn <laughs> everything. The great school of YouTube. This house was built on YouTube, P.S. I mean, it is crazy. We're pushing these kids instead of saying, no, don't be ashamed. You don't have to go do that. Let me show you a couple jobs that are really cool mm-hmm. where you will never miss a paycheck. Yeah. <laughs> Good luck. Call a plumber today and see how quick he can show up. Yeah. Get a builder, tradesman, woodworker. Yeah. These guys sure. are artists and good luck getting them. Yeah. Can't, can't get stuff. So, but yeah, but it, and, and in those days it wasn't, nobody pushed you. You know, most kids, I'm 54, weren't pushed to go to college. Mm-hmm. Most of my friends did not. Mm-hmm. My generation was very, very pushed. I'm 44. And uh, yeah, I mean, and I don't, that's not to say that I regret going to college. There's a lot I gained from that. However, the stuff I gained in college, honest to God, I should have learned in high school. And I'm not trying to pass the buck or anything, but my public school uh, education was lacking. It really was. When I went to, I went to a small liberal arts college on the East Coast, and when I showed up, I was really, really chagrined. I mean, I didn't know anything, and everybody around me had covered it years before. So I'm very fortunate that I got to go, and I came up to speed really fast, but um, I should have, that stuff should have happened already. So... I think it just goes all the way down to the California, you know, how we're educated from kindergarten on. Um, But it's funny to me. So you sent your kids to Catholic school, at least somewhat. Well, they wanted to, I didn't push it. Mm -hmm. They, uh, Jake wanted to go to mission for basketball. So did Max. And then Max missed all of his childhood friends. Mm -hmm. Um, And is still close with his mission friends. And a lot of his childhood friends went to mission. Um, And he's still in touch still hangs out with him, mm-hmm. but he came back to Templeton um, and it worked. And my daughter Genevieve was fine at Templeton. She was, mm-hmm. she didn't need any extra motivation. Yeah. Um, she didn't need the structure that mission would have offered verse mm-hmm. Templeton. She was, she was that person. So yeah, we, uh, we gave the kids their, their choice. 
Yeah. I mean, my wife would have rather seen them all at mission, but yeah, they're great at Templeton. No, yeah, they have choices. But, but listen, you know this. I don't need to tell you this. It, it helps having two parents. Yeah. Socioeconomic issues are real. Mm-hmm. When you have two parents, just look at the numbers. I mean, the success, op- opportunity for success rate doubles. Mm-hmm. But, you know, schools have gotten so rough now that it's really parenting. It, it just, I, I tell all my friends, they're picking all these schools, they're freaking out. And I'm like, I don't know that, yeah, there might be, this school might be better, but at 30,000 bucks or 36,000 bucks down south, just be good parents, be involved. Mm-hmm. And you're, if you know and you're in at parent-teacher conferences and you're making sure and you're checking online and is homework done and listen, my daughter's going to Notre Dame and she went to a public high school, right? She went to Templeton. And so, and 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 her friend group, these kids are startlingly intelligent and they're all going to uber high level schools. So parenting Mm -hmm. obviously is to me the most important when it comes to education. I love these kids so much. It's just, it's funny. As you're talking, I'm thinking, I'm just so proud of my kids. They are not, you know, they're good kids, but <clears throat> more than that, they're good people. Like they're good persons. They are the people I want in my corner. And my kids are young; they're nine and twelve. And I just, especially lately, have been seeing so much maturity that it's just it's it's heartbreakingly wonderful. Um, well, and by the way, they're they're dealing with a lot more than you ever had to deal with. Hell's yes, they are. I mean, <laughs> this freaking internet and phone addiction is, and, and shaming, and just, it's so startling what these kids have to go yeah. through. I mean, I don't think I know a kid that doesn't talk to somebody now. Mm. Like, we didn't have any friends. If you had to talk to someone, that means that you were just a bad kid like me, and on Ritalin or whatever. Oh, you mean talk to someone like an authority who's upset? No, talk to a psychiatrist. Oh, well, gotcha. I mean, now gotcha. every kid has to talk to him. The, the, the issues that these children have to deal with now, what, what, did, what did I deal with? A, a flat tire on my bike? Yeah. I got grounded or spanked and like, oh, yeah. well, I mean, <laughs> the, the telephone is a disease. It's a bomb in their hand at all times. It's a bomb for me. It's <sighs> a, I mean, is it like, do you, are you good about putting your phone down? I am now. I don't sleep with it. I go paddle boarding without it. I go biking without it. Yeah. I try to do everything without it now because it's it's a disease. I'm not on Instagram or social media or any crap like that. Like mm-hmm. the office does it for me. I have an Instagram account, but I don't That's post good. They do yeah. it. Yeah. And I'm not on Facebook or anything like that. But yeah, I mean, I'm not going to, I'm just like anybody else. If I think a text is there, or email, I'm checking. It's in my hand. I probably got cancer in the ass and the, <laughs> ass cancer. and the penis and the brain and <laughs> you know I mean yeah I mean it, it, it's a disease I wish they would just go away I know I've thought about that what if all those cell phones just disappeared I used to get on a bike with a, a dime my mom gave us a dime payphone mm-hmm. and just you know be home by the street lights we just took off and we the, guy, I, the shit I got into Mm-hmm. I mean, I think I found weed and beer and just shit I ought not have found, but harmless. I made my decisions like, well, I don't really like this. Oh, yeah, well, that's and, handy. You know, uh, but it was a different time. And, and then you came home at night and yeah. but all this creepiness that's opened up and, you know, the dark web and all this is given every fantasy life. And it's just a crazy world we Ick. live in. These poor kids are a part of it. And you're thinking, 
now you almost have to bubble parent. You're so freaked mm. out by it. Like, yeah. So Ugh. I digress. I, I, I don't even want to go on that topic. So sorry. No, I know. That. No, it's okay. Um, you talked about loving on your, um, employees just in terms of like giving them the training they need, treating them well, giving them, you know, great benefits and, and tools to be successful. And that then you don't have to worry about the customers with, um, kids, I mean, we both know that there are so many incredible single parents out there who raise their kids beautifully well, sacrifice all kinds to make things work. When you talk about the numbers and how dual parent um, homes, kids just have a leg up. I recently um, was talking to a friend who said, you know, the best way to give your child love is to show appreciation, respect, and love towards your spouse or your partner. And it's sort of in the same vein of like, hold on, take care of this. And also to take care of yourself, you know, just the self, but also the partnership. And the last, the other stuff does seem to fall into place. At least I'm like really crossing my fingers that it does. Yeah. And, and, you know, relationships are hard. Yeah. But, in, but the kids never need to see that. They need to see the hug and the kiss and yeah. the embrace. And I admire these single parents so much. It's so hard. I've got a, a close friend that reps my wines in Orange County and, and the, the wife's an alcoholic. He's waiting for the phone call. It's so bad, mm. you know, mm. the bad one. Okay. And he's got full custody. And he doesn't get to say, let's meet for a beer after work right. or let's go play in a softball league. He's got to go home to his two beautiful children and make sure that their homework's done and that their dinner's cooked. Yeah. And it's a different, it's so much harder. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's why the dual is obviously we have a severe leg. You know, you got a, a great advantage. I, 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 my heart breaks for single parents out there. And, uh, but, you know, it's a privilege for sure. Okay. We haven't talked about wine even a little bit. Not even a little bit. Which is why we are meeting each other. So We're very serious content right now. You know, it goes that way. Does you know? it? Does it? All right. If I'm at the helm, yeah. I just like, like I said, it's about people and people um, are really pretty remarkable when you sit down and let them be heard. So, um, But with wine, it's just... So easy and simple. It's, oh my gosh! Well, so <laughs> then we don't have to. No one gets upset. It's just oh yeah, I like this wine. I don't like. This. Oh my yes. god, this is so. Yummy. And when it's really good, it's like <laughs> resting, and your all your attention is on that glass. So you decided to come up. You fell in love with wine. What was the aha bottle that you were like, holy cow? So I have a podcast as well, and and I all that's right. Yeah, Tell, what's it called? Pop and corks. Yes. And it's mainly focused around athletes. Mm -hmm. um, I've had a lot of athletes on my list, professional athletes, whether it's basketball, NFL, or baseball. Yeah. And so I decided to start having them on my show. And I, I don't always believe in the, the life-changing bottle, mm -hmm. but it, my aha into wine was an Italian bottle at Bertolucci in South San Francisco, and everyone was wearing... 
tuxedos they were probably filthy dirty but to me i had never eaten at a nice restaurant mm-hmm. and it probably is not nice but you know just some of these old italian places they oh they feel so good they yeah. just you know they make the guys and they're probably wearing dirty shoes and it's you sure, know sure sure but to me i'm looking at these guys and we have this italian bottle and my friend's dad nothing was ever expensive so it was probably a $24 bottle on the list in those mm-hmm. days. It was probably a $12 retail bottle. How old are you? I'm 54. Okay. So no, this, no, I oh, mean when 22? you're having it. Oh, so formative, yeah. Yeah, and and I was a self-proclaimed wine hater. Like, oh, I hate wine, you know, yeah. because the stuff that my mom and dad would put on the table was so bad because they could never afford anything yeah. good. Thus, my Harvey and Harriet brand. Mm-hmm. And this bottle was like, oh my God. I not only like wine, I'm fanatical. And so then I would show up to parties as a 22-year-old with two bottles of wine and a cigar. Like, But it was never good, so it was like a swisher sweet. <laughs> I love cigars, and I loved red wine. And I loved Italians first, so it was Italian wine. I don't know what that bottle was that night. Like, all these psalms will just say, oh, it was a 78 Margot. And that, that's kind of that white aristocratic douchebaggery that I hate about wine. It's like... Really, bro? I mean, that was your life-changing moment. I just, mm-hmm. I hate that. I, <laughs> it just boils me. It's like, mm-hmm. what was the bottle of wine that, or, or moment that you said, man, this shit's freaking good. Mm-hmm. I, I'm going to drink a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and then you start finding out how it's made and it's farmed. And then this is like, people travel the world to see this and see how it's made. And that's the respect for wine, right? We know it's yeah. years and years, seven years, really got a plant and then the wine stays in barrel before you bottle it, et cetera, et cetera. So it was that bottle uh, up in South San Francisco. Hmm. And then I was in love with the grape juice. Yeah. I, I really love people who fall in love with Italian wine. They are different than people who fall in love with French wine. I don't know what it is, but there's, um, there's like a grittiness a lot of the time too. And also you kind of take your chances with Italian bottles quite a bit. It's riskier in terms of what, when you pop the cork, what's going to be there. Um, but man, they can be so, so beautiful and change everything. When I turned 21 on my 21st birthday, got on a bike in April in upstate New York and it was icy and I got on a bike with my jacket and I went to the closest wine shop I could find because they didn't they don't sell them in grocery stores and I bought a bottle I think it was probably $21 of Chianti it was disgusting but at the time I was like on top of the world it was just it was the bottle I wanted drank a lot of Chianti sure I drank a lot of the basket Chianti yeah yeah one of the brown uh uh who makes that again it's uh uh Banfi maybe sure uh, yeah it, it was just in that little brown wicker and yeah uh yeah I was a big Italian guy yeah and Trader Joe's was just this hip you know, oh it was hip. down by you then if you were in Southern California yeah yeah you're and this is 30 years ago yes know? and they had one right across from me in uh Costa Mesa right off of mm-hmm. the where the, the freeway ended before you got to the beach and so oh yeah uh, that was my start, and you're right. Italian wine's harder. It's it's more earthy. It's yeah. uh, it's not so robust and big in fruit usually. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I'm still thirty years later on Italian wine too. Are I, you? <laughs> I still love Italian. That's wine. awesome. Well, what made you decide to do Rome? Well, and what made you decide to go to Paso? We were in Sam Santa Barbara looking for a wedding spot, and and, and 
I had had buddies that came up here. Their families lived here. I remember seeing Paso Robles, a Royal Grandy, uh, Wasno. We have a ranch, and another buddy had a family. Always up at the Mid State Fair, and I'd never paid attention to it. So I really hadn't even heard of it. I couldn't have said there's a city called Paso Robles. I just in passing would have heard of it. Oh, maybe I've heard of it. Mm-hmm. And we were in Santa Barbara, and we started talking to this couple. Yeah, we're looking for a wedding site. We want to get married in the vineyard, and they said. Oh my God, why don't you guys go to Paso and check it out? It's hot. It's so cool. It's Everyone's going there. And so we drove there and we stayed at the Arbor Inn, which is now Summerwood. Oh, yeah. And that night we fell in love with it. That was it. We got married at Justin. Hmm. And <laughs> I said one night out on the balcony at the Arbor Inn, I looked at my wife, who I think I was just dating then. I says, I'm going to buy you a vineyard one day. One day we're going to... I didn't say I'm going to buy you one. I thought, we're going to own a vineyard one day. Mm-hmm. And... She laughed, like always, like, yeah, right. She still <laughs> she says She sounds that. like she grounds you. She still says that stuff yeah. to me. So that was it. Uh, got the bug, and it was Paso. And then I started tasting Sarong Grenache, and I said, oh, because all I drank at home was Cabernet. Cab, yeah. And then Italian wines. And boy, when I found Sarong Grenache, yeah. it changed my life. I said, this is where my heart is. Mm-hmm. And so that's probably 26 years ago. And then I bought a ranch, and we used to come up and visit. And just a little place off Wellsona mm-hmm. and realized it was not the right spot for high-end planting. Yeah. So we sold it and bought out of the Booker Trust what is now Booker Vineyard. Yeah. And talk a little bit about Booker. I mean, I love the story about these brothers. Claude and Dick. Love it. Humanitarians gave everything away. Uh, when they were alive, they farmed seven days a week, six. Sundays, they'd start and do work in the morning, but then they would always do like a potluck with all, their, all the neighbors and they would... Good cooks. Uh, they drew straws, and the deal was, uh, I think Claude had to do the cooking, and Dick had to do the cleanup, and he cooked until the other complained, and then you got to cook, and the other one, I don't think he ever complained. So you learn all this? We just have researched everything we could yeah. about them, uh, and, and just so many stories. Uh, they, they founded the Templeton Farmers softball team, and they loved, mm. uh, they never cussed, they didn't drink. Um but they owned a vineyard. But they were strong and no, no, no vineyards. Oh, it's just the property. Uh, animals okay. and then, you know, hay and, and, and alfalfa and got it, okay. Um, safflower, whatever called whatever, you know, they knew they could sell mm-hmm. rotating crops. Um, thousands of acres. And so it was just so special as I started hearing stories about how much they did. Uh, you know, our dad got cancer and when he passed uh, that that first year they farmed the land and they just brought in a bag of cash and set it on the table mm. for the crop and I kept hearing these stories about what unreal people and humanitarians they were I said I need to keep their name alive because it's going to go away because yeah. the, the, their generation was passing on and there was no real memory of them they they did build donate the money to build the ag departments of both Paso and uh, Templeton High School oh wow um, to keep farmers alive to keep welders uh they, they knew the importance of not every kid going speaking yeah. of to college but Training, we needed yeah. trade tradesmen because that's yeah. what they were and so i said man i gotta name this booker I, I just have to keep their name alive and and i i really wanted to be the neighbor that they were you know and so immediately i got all my neighbors together and i said if you ever need anything for me let me know i'd like to start our relationship by let's buy a tractor Everybody chip in and would just share it. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I've already got 
this mower and this mower. Anytime you need to use it, hmm. you can use it. And so I started this camaraderie with Joey Barton at Gray Wolf with Carl Bauger. Um, at first with the Niners, it didn't work out well, but then Andy came and took over, and now we have that 100% relationship with Bill Armstrong next door. We buy the fruit from Catapult Vineyard at Epic. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of us on the road have developed that relationship where we just, hey, what do you need? Yep, Stefano Sale, my favorite neighbor, uh, is named after him at La Venture. I mean, I've me and him have shared tractors at Harvest, and other equipment for 22 years. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I wanted to keep it alive. And I, I, I love that mentality of community sharing and then putting back into your community and making it a better place. Yeah. Well, and it increases your quality of life, right? When you're able to do that, have a tool library or, you know, tractor library or whatever. Um, so my favorite neighbor is a label that you started um, – after Booker, and it's not specific to any variety, right? It's it's Cab, Petite Verdot, and Syrah. Oh, it but, is. But okay. I can throw them all back in there. I can throw other things. Those three are what it really launched as in 06. Mm-hmm. And it was a Booker wine early on. It was just called, the skew was called My Favorite Neighbor, and it was homage to Stefan at La Venture. Because he was a mentor to you. Him and Justin Smith at Saxon were both my two. God, you could do worse than that. That's yeah, for sure. Yeah, jeez. You and are they, very lucky. Very ass backwards lucky. These guys, yeah. they were, Stefan was new here and he yeah. was struggling. He was formally trained in, in Bordeaux, but, and Justin shit, he wasn't confident about winemaking. Mm-hmm. He knew he could farm. He knew, he knew what was going on in the vineyard, like at an extraordinary level. Mm. He wasn't confident in his winemaking at that time. He told me we should get Stefan. Mm. Justin wasn't ready. Mm. And, you know, now he's considered one of the top cult winemakers in the world. Mm. Uh, as is Stefan. So, yeah. So I named it after him as an homage to him. And I didn't need one for Justin because he was doing the Saxon Booker buying the, the fruit. What was it like when you told Stefan that you were going to name it that after him? Oh, he was so honored. He just, to, to this day, he's, Eric, you, you have not sent me my allocation. I need my six bottles. I need, you know. And like in bad years when he's like, oh, you could not make cab this year. I'm like, I don't know. Try this one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Maybe uh, not in our chalk, you can't, yeah. but on the clay sites, it's just better for yeah. Cabernet. I am, you know, you and I don't have great Cabernet soil, Stefan. And uh, his wines are so, so beautiful. So spectacular. I was just with him They're and special. Justin in Spain. Oh, my goodness. Just the three of you. No, we had the wives and the fam- Justin had his whole family, the whole tribe. Mm. My daughter backed out last minute because she's got her first boyfriend and uh, she's going off to college. So, me and my wife. Stayed at, at their place in Catechus, Spain. It was unbelievable. And the Smiths just rolled over every day. And we just cooked and ate and went to restaurants and rode mopeds and oh my biked gosh. and paddleboarded. And, uh, Good to be out too, right? To be traveling. Unbelievable to yeah. be out, yeah. It feels like such a privilege. Um, okay, so my favorite neighbor. And then you also have um, Harvey and Harriet. So my favorite neighbor I started because I got so tired of the, the Napa folks jacking their prices every time they got a score. 75 bucks, 150, 225, 325. That I said, you know, I want the world to taste an organically farmed. Uh, so, in our contract for my favorite neighbor, it's not certified, but it, it will be probably within two years because all of our sites that we go through farm organically. So, we're going to just tell them, yeah. hey, we'll help you through the process, even if we have to pay. Because um, there's really only a few sites that we buy from. Um, 
I wanted Americans to be able to taste a cult wine, but not that they could afford. Yeah. 50 is a lot of money. I get that. Yeah. But afford occasionally, mm-hmm. right? And then I realized when I started traveling uh, in the off season, it, it was still way too much money. And so that's when I wanted to come up with a wine for more people. And I needed to be at $30. Mm-hmm. And I thought of my parents immediately. I mean, I hatched this whole idea on an airplane. Mm-hmm. When I came to the realization that, hey, 50 is a lot of money. I immediately came up with Harvey and Harriet. I wanted it. That was really going against a lot of the sweet wines because in that $30 range, there's so many wines with so much crap in them. Mm-hmm. I wanted to make something honest and, and straightforward and dry mm-hmm. and legit yeah. and, and, and make the, the ranches farm it organically. And no tweaking, no sugar, no yeah, Velcrin. No, yeah. No, no. We haven't used Velcrin. And I, I did use Velcrin at Booker yeah. uh, for a couple of years. And then I like woke up and said, what the f- well, so many people don't even consider that manipulation. You know, it's considered kind of just part and parcel of yeah, the whole thing. Yeah, I, I consider it more part and parcel than taking a tank of wine and adding sugar to it. Oh, sure. Or adding a chemical to it. Yeah. Um, but I didn't like it. And yeah. I'm like, why would I do this instead of just filter? Yeah. If I got live, live bacteria, because it is a living product, mm-hmm. just filter it. Yeah. And I'm like, what are we doing? So we got out of that game. I like that. That's smart. Actually. We got out of that game real quick because just running through a filter is just no different than in your coffee pot. You do, so you don't get the crumbs. But a lot of it. people are big on unfiltered wine. And so, you know, you got to kind of choose your lane. Yeah, I we try not to filter anything. But we also, when you're making wine that's going across the globe, you... You got to be careful. You look at it and you owe a debt to the, the consumer that... that Cork's not going to pop, and it's yeah. not going to be fizzy, and it's not going to be microbial. Gross, yeah, and and, and gross, and uh, yeah. So, I'd say most people are now moving to filtration, except mm-hmm. the natural wine guys, who I'm not a very big fan of because I call guys like me and Justin Smith natural winemakers. Mm-hmm. Natural wine's gotten a lot of hype, and and most of the winemakers I meet, I've met some fantastic ones, but I meet a lot of them that are just lazy. So I, I think of it as mm-hmm. lazy winemaking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Like I never see my natural winemakers out in the vineyards that I'm at. Yeah. Uh, I I just see them talking and twisting a mustache, combing their beard, talking about, you know, <laughs> that they didn't add SO2, which is something that the wine actually produces naturally itself. Uh, and it's like, yeah, you you may want to actually check the vineyards and the soil and, you know, but. They get a free pass. I've had more wines pushing corks and fizzy and shit. I don't think that's going to last. I mean, and also I'm not going to get myself in the middle. I've never seen people so passionate and upset as people talking about natural wine. I mean, it's so polarizing, it feels like. Um, I'd love to sit at a round table with them. Because yeah. the, the problem with most of them, I'd, I'd, I'd love to. Yeah. Because I don't know a lot of them that understand vine physiology Soil science, wine chemistry. Mm-hmm. So to just, it's easy to just sit back and say, yeah, we're just, this is of the earth. It's like, okay, were you in the vineyard? Did yeah. you pick it right? So you're saying that those folks tend to be the ones who deal with it once it's already in the tank. Yeah, and and most of the ones I've met are just yapping because it's a movement. Yeah. They're not steadfast saying, no, 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 I am in the vineyard. Mm-hmm. I am seeing what's going back into my soil. And I am concerned with the, 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 
the the microbes and and everything in the ground, all the protozoa, and what's happening in that 18 inches and, and how they're mining what they're eating, what they're crapping mm -hmm. out that then is breaking down, et cetera, et cetera. All of these things that are important, it's just became hipster to say, you know, this is all natural. And a lot of bartenders started doing that, forgetting that a lot of the product, like Campari, that they were using, mm -hmm. like if they looked at how a lot of that stuff oh was gosh, made, they yes. would freak out. Yes, right. But they became so... It's kind of precious, though. Yeah. Yeah, so I didn't like it to be precious. We wanted to we want to look at it from the onset, from the nursery, how the vines were, were chemicals treated on them. Don't give me this all natural stuff if you don't know if your vine was, yeah. you know, raised with all chemicals. Mm -hmm. And then what's the farmer doing? Are you looking at the, their pesticide use reports like we do? Mm -hmm. So you know if they're lying to you? Are you in the vineyard? Are you looking at their chemical shed? Mm -hmm. Like you can't be sanctimonious. Otherwise, just do it and don't, talk crap about it yeah i'm okay with that just saying hey i make natural wine because this is what i like I'm, don't take a position i'm though. all yeah. in on that mm -hmm. but don't be holier than that when you're not doing your homework and you know yeah no so. i hear that you're not the only one who feels that way i know for sure tell me about the new tasting room and the new space that you're that you're featuring because and how new is it uh a year and a few months yeah okay Maybe they shoot. We're, Middle of we're the August. pandemic. Oh, God damn, I'm getting a year older. Um, yeah, it's a year and a half old. It is. It's it's startling simplicity. Oh really? What do you mean? I just made that up right now. Oh, <laughs> it is world class when you go in it. Yeah, it's unlike any other room in Paso Robles. It's so thoughtful. Every aspect of it. The designers. Other than the restoration of hardware, because a lot of our designers could not get us the product, so we had to uh, get it from. I mean, listen, restoration hardware is awesome, and their shit is beautiful. Yeah, but, but everything. We custom wanted a bunch of little custom, like yeah. our woodworkers are these slow guys, and they're just so badass. Who is it? Um, what's the company name? I don't know. Two different uh, uh, mill companies that we work with here. Mm -hmm. I'll get you the name. I got them in my phone. The one company built our. Uh, racking system mm -hmm. for our library very difficult because it's on sloped floors and it had to match and it's breathtaking for our library in the cave and then the other guys did all of our woodwork on and, and uh, on our pergola um, with all real cedar and we like to know where it's sourced from mm -hmm. how it was treated all of those things. And then we got some San Francisco designers. Please don't ask me the name. I won't. Uh, I won't. They're great. I just wonder because it's such a small town and I, you never know who you know. So. Uh, Keith, and I just don't know Keith's That's company, okay. but they are stars. They are true craftsmen. Yeah. I mean, these guys, you can get somebody that learned how to cut wood just because they needed a body and the, or people like these, but these are, these are craftspeople. Yep. Yep. And, um, but Keith and his team, they're awesome. And, but we didn't want to hang a bunch of art and take away from the absolute beauty of even the the high back chairs were custom made from this small guy in San Francisco and they're just so thoughtful mm -hmm. and just gorgeous. And so we're like, okay. And then the, the furnitures were, uh, the, the couches and the banquettes were made up there uh, by a designer up there. And we're like, do we hang a, get a, a, a kind of a baller local artist? But then you're like, 
I don't want to steal from yeah. all this absolute, yeah. even the light fixtures, the light fixture above the bar came out of uh, Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. Don't ask. I'm not going to. Um, it was a year late too, but it was so awesome from this cool kind of hipster Brooklyn company that's thoughtful. My wife really seeks these types of people out. So she is does, she kind of overseeing all yes, that? Yes, okay. she, she was the entire behind the scenes. She won't talk to people. She's introverted, but she is really the design. Everything that was great about Booker was, was Lisa Jensen. Mm -hmm. And so she sourced all these people, and, and she did have a designer, Katie Martinez, from the north, but Lisa really is the lead and she's just unbelievable like has the vision she has such a vision for every aspect and then our architect juan carlos fernandez uh mexico city born mm -hmm. uh probably only been here 15 years still a thick accent he is a freak of nature signum architecture out of napa so we i would not advise d doing business this way but we designed on the fly we had a goal and a concept and then we'd like yeah we're gonna change that like in real time in real time <laughs> yeah and yeah. rogers and peterson uh freaked out all the time but they were the best uh they're local uh builders and it is you have on top of the hill this gorgeous indoor outdoor room. it's got all the pocket doors that disappear into the wall mm -hmm. so the whole thing you don't know if you're inside or outside and and then there's an indoor outdoor terrace uh that is uh mostly for club members but it's unreal mm. And, you know, like a day like tomorrow, Kane Brown hears about us and he's at the fair tonight. So he's in there tomorrow with Fun. Taylor Lautner uh, uh, from Twilight. But that's, it's weekly. It's yeah. just nonstop. They hear about it. They see it in one of the big architectural digest type magazines. Mm -hmm. And you get, you'll be people watching and they'll go, holy crap. Uh, but it is, the design of it is so thoughtful and minimalist and gorgeous and the lines are perfect. Even the bathrooms. I show the bathrooms. I'm like, bathrooms are special. I'm man. like, check this bath. And there's music in the bathrooms. I want music everywhere. The as, second you pull down the street, there's speakers. You hear music playing. Yeah. As my mom says, if you go to a party, the place that you see the most is the bathroom, right? Cause you're alone and you're checking stuff out. So always make the bathroom spick and span. And very cute. Let me ask you, final question. It's your last day on earth and you've had such a good life and you want to celebrate. What are you going to eat? What are you going to drink? And who's going to be there? Well, of course, I'd be there with my family. Uh, hopefully all of them that were alive. I've got great friends, but, you know, I would have to do the family. And I'm going to, I would, I'm, I'm a very thankful kind of emotional and spiritual person. So I would drink a Booker to be mm -hmm. thankful for, you know, a, a brand that has created such a great life for so many people. Food's tough. You know, it used to always be, well, it would be pasta. Hmm. But it, that's a tough one. You know, there's just so many meals. I say this might be the greatest I meal. I say it ever. all the time, yeah. But if I had to, it would be probably homemade pasta from you know, something like Carbone's in New York or some pasta place that, you know, even shoot, if I had to just Antonio from Bonatavola, mm -hmm. you know, make me a dish, uh, uh, Santos at Il Cortile, but, yeah. uh, you know, I wouldn't mind Julian at LPC making me something either. Or any <laughs> we'll call them all up. Bloom, but it, it would probably have to be uh, a pasta dish, red sauce, uh, whether it's bolognese or, you know, uh, 
I rabiata or something. Yeah. yeah. That, uh, I, I probably, a probably be a little less dense. So it'd probably be an arabiata and, uh, <laughs> yeah. And, and a booker to be thankful. And I would start with probably a, a salon champagne or a, uh, Paul Roger, Winston Churchill, and uh, then move on to uh, a Chablis and a white Burgundy, and then move into the Bookers. Doing it up. That sounds like a good a good time. Thank you for coming, for chatting with me, for going deeper than surface level in an hour. I appreciate it. You got it. It was an honor to be here, and uh, yeah, thank you so much. That's it for this episode of the Consumed Podcast. Consumed is produced and edited by me, Jamie Lewis. To learn more about my guests, to see their photos, to learn about live events, yes, live events, to join the Consumed mailing list, and more, visit letsgetconsumed.com. Consumed.com.